not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think the way the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destinations the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we interview mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I met Deontay Boswell a few weeks ago when my family attended the Heritage Camps for Adoptive Families Domestic Adoption Camp in Estes Park, Colorado. And of course, I'm glad we met Deontay. Um, he's also a co-host of the Tough Love Podcast. Welcome to the show, Deontay. Is that the, that's not the whole title, right? No, sir. It's actually titled Tough Love Adoptees Perspective on Relationships. Okay. And you know what's funny is I know you guys are on Spotify, and I, I, for some reason on the thumbnail, it was hard for me to find the actual full, like, full name of it. I've listened to, you know, we met, what, three weeks ago? And, um, yeah, three weeks ago. I probably listened to five or six episodes. Uh, I've got a, a pretty good idea of uh, what your show is about. Now, you've got a couple of co-hosts, right? Uh, yes, sir. I have Glenna and Lauren, who are both international adoptees. Glenna is from Russia, and Lauren is adopted from Chile. Right, and and Lauren actually just did a couple episodes. It was a, it was a two-part on having met her birth family and traveling down there, right? Yes, she did. Yeah, that was amazing, and of course she was at Heritage Camps, and, and your other co-host was there too, right? Uh, yep. Man, that is awesome. Now, look, you can probably describe it better than I can, so why don't you explain for my listeners what actually Heritage Camps for Adoptive, Adoptive Families is? Yeah, absolutely. So Heritage Camps for Adoptive Families are camps for families who have been uh, touched by adoption. So typically, a lot of their camps are set up for um, transracial families who have adopted from specific cultures. I believe they have nine heritage camps focusing on different cultures. I grew up going to African Caribbean heritage camp because I'm obviously um, African American and my parents are white. And then they have two Chinese camps just because China camp is so big they need to split it. They also have Korean heritage camp, Indian Nepalese heritage camp, and uh, Southeast Asian Pacific heritage camp. So those are the camps that kind of focus on the adoptee's culture, and it's really about, like, giving the adoptee that cultural experience and being around people that look like them, while also giving parents, like, tools and resources to help raise uh, kids of that nationality. The only camp that's different is domestic adoption camp, because they realize, hey, you know, we're leaving out families who have been touched by domestic adoption, either fostered through the foster to adopt or kinship adoption or maybe they're currently fostering um and that's still like a huge population and i still follow or fall into that category because i was adopted domestically right. and so yeah keep keep going you know so i was going to say was another thing that i found interesting and this makes total sense is there are different parts of the parts of the world for instance china where um, adoption, international adoption, was uh, very common. It was a big thing for many years, but that's kind of stopped. And it's been an, it's been enough years that there are no longer, or there is a very rapidly shrinking number of people in the United States who were adopted from China, and therefore th those camps are no more, or they're getting getting phased out, right? Right. So I can't speak for China camps specifically, but. Um... One of my friends goes to a Russia camp, and it was very, very tiny because similar to China, they've kind of trickled down in terms of allowing uh, 
adoptions. So they're trying to figure out, okay, what will that look like? Because obviously the kids that grew up in that camp still need that connection and still really value the relationships that they have, but the numbers just aren't there. So I don't really know what that'll look like in the future. Now you said you, you attended primarily African and Caribbean heritage camps. Did you ever do a domestic or just a regular domestic adoption camp? I did two years when I was a kid as a camper, and that's just because they lined up perfectly. So um, African Caribbean was one week, and then we stayed in Denver that whole week, and my dad worked remote, and my mom and I did, like, just fun nature outdoorsy stuff during the week, and then that next weekend was domestic camp. You know, our first night there on Friday night, uh, the director, Mr. Rubin, um, said something about it's nice for everybody to be in a place where we're all this, where we're all just normal. We can feel normal. You're around people like you. And I think you and I had this conversation. Um, I explained to you that for a moment, I, I wouldn't say it was put off, but you know, I go throughout most of my days thinking to myself and sometimes explaining to other people, my family is pretty normal. We just grew it differently. And as I was explaining that to my wife that night, that I was a little, you know, just a little bit put off by that. Right. I, there was something about his statement that, uh, I felt didn't really resonate or I didn't identify with. And she said, you know what? It's not just about you. It's about our kids. And like you said, there are, you know, as you're a transracial adoptee and my children are both, you know, a child who's mixed and a child who's African-American. And, you know, they were able to be, especially my younger one, uh, not only to be, we live in a place where there's not a lot of, not much of an African-American population. So not only to get to be with other children who look like her, but other children who look like her, who have parents who don't look like her. And so that really hit me. And of course I saw the value um, in the camps while we were up there. Now you presented at camp, you were there as a presenter. Uh, and while we're going to delve a little bit deeper um, into uh, your story, can you get just a little review of what you remember sharing uh, during your presentation? Yes, absolutely. So I, um, talked about how for my whole life I've been struggling kind of with what it means to be a black man um, who has white parents. You know, I talk a lot about how when I go about the world or how I carry myself, it is through such a white lens and how there can be times where it's challenging because I don't fit into traditional like black categories or my interests don't align with a lot of black people I know. And so it can be sort of like off putting to be in those spaces. And so like you just said about your daughter, I find my community is really black people who also have white parents because they truly understand like what it's like to be in my skin, I guess. Right. And, you know, on your show, you shared uh, quite a bit about your adoption story. Uh, there were some things I was wondering about uh, when I first started listening to it. I, I didn't know if you were going to actually delve into it, and you did. Um, as those of us in the adoption community know, uh, a person's adoption story is theirs to tell and nobody else's. Uh, I, I know sometimes as parents we're, we're kind of, we want to do it, but I have to, you know, you have to catch yourself and just remember that it's it's the child's story to tell. Were you at all apprehensive about starting this podcast for basically the whole world to hear uh, your personal story? You know, that's a great question. I wasn't only because I had been 
talking about my story and doing the quote unquote adoption work for so long through heritage camps that it's become second nature. And when I'm telling it, I guess I feel kind of like detached because I've said it so many times I've lived it. It just feels normal. Whereas I'll talk to other adoptees or maybe even parents who are like, well, that's so interesting. And I never really see it as that unique or that interesting because it's just been my whole experience. Okay. And you know, your, your co-hosts, how did you meet them? That's a great question. So I met Lauren a couple years ago at African Caribbean Heritage Camp. And then she met Glenna through a class at University of Denver. Uh, Glenna was a student and um, Lauren was a presenter. And then they connected. Lauren told Glenna about Heritage Camps. And then one thing led to another and we all kind of got introduced to each other. Now, it's interesting. You said you met Lauren at African Caribbean Heritage Camp. Lauren is South American. Yes. She was there as a presenter um, talking about like her experience as an international adoptee. Ah, okay. I was, I was trying to, I had, I guess I hadn't really, before I was preparing for the interview, I hadn't thought too much about how you, I just, I, I assumed that you guys kind of knew each other through heritage camps, but um, yes. I just assumed that you might've met Lauren. Uh, is there, is there a South American heritage camp? Yes, there is. Okay, well, I I would I I probably assumed that you guys had met at just the regular uh, the the domestic uh, heritage camps for adoptive families. Now, your own story. Uh, I just mentioned a few minutes ago that the first couple episodes of the podcast, I wondered if you were going to talk about something that you eventually did, and I didn't hear you talk too much about um, at heritage camp. But you and I was kind of I was going to until I heard you talk about it on the on the episode, I was going to make sure that it was something you were comfortable talking about your own adoption story, um, your your birth family, um, your family, uh, the whole transracial adoption thing. Do you mind sharing what, you know, kind of the situation you have a unique situation I learned uh, about birth order and things like that with your birth family. So if you don't mind, can you kind of tell us what your situation was? The, the scenario and what your, your birth family was facing and why they made the decision uh, to create an adoption plan. Yes, absolutely. So when my birth mom got pregnant with me, she was um, caring for my older brother and my sister, and she was going through a divorce or breakup with my biological father and kind of just looked around, realized her situation and said, you know what? I probably could do this raising three kids by myself. It would be hard, obviously, but I think I could do it, but I'm not sure. So, but I know that if I give the third up, they will be loved and taken care of in a way that I just am unable to provide for. So it was a very much like a, I could have stayed with her. I could have been placed she just made the decision that she felt was best for me to give me the life that she felt I deserved. Right. And so flash forward, um, a couple years, I was placed with my parents, um, who raised me, Michael and Catherine. And I reconnected with my birth family when I was two. Um, and we've just been in each other's lives ever since. What makes my story a little bit unique is um, 
that access to them my entire life, obviously. And then also my birth mom later remarried and decided to adopt her nieces from her sister and do a kinship adoption. And um, I had this conversation with her because she always worried like, well, are you upset? You know, I gave you up, but then I brought on two more. And I just told her like, look, I understood that when I came into the world, you weren't ready to parent three situations change, circumstances change, and now you're able to. And, you know, there's no animosity there. I think really the biggest thing is I'm not really like super close to my birth family um, right now. It, I, it sounds to me like that would be much more likely for you to have the understanding you do of the, of, why your birth mother was not able to to keep you and she created the adoption plan but then later adopted you know two nieces what what age was that that you how old were you when she did that oh gosh that was a that's a great question i must have been late elementary like fourth fifth grade maybe early middle school so i was still pretty young but i was to the point where I could have a um, understanding of the world and like my mom could educate me and tell me like, Hey, this is why your birth mom did what she did. Um, But I never thought of it as weird or anything like that until I would tell other people later on down the line and I'd see their face, their confusion. And I said, Oh, I guess that isn't really typical but neither is my whole story. Like most people don't have the access to their birth family that I do. Yeah. I, um, it's just, I, I can't help but wonder if you're speaking more. And of course I'm not questioning what you're explaining to me, but I'm just trying to make sense of, do you think you have a better and more for lack of a better term, well-adjusted, um, uh, feeling about it today than you did back then? Was it, do you think it's easier for you to understand now than, than when you're 10, 11, 12 years old? You know, I think in part, yes, but I also don't think that it ever really crossed my mind as this is strange. This is bizarre. You know, I, I struggled with my adoption, but I didn't really struggle with her bringing on the other two kids. What I really struggled with was like the feelings of, you know, missing her and then really not having that relationship with my birth dad it was what was in my mind a lot at that time of life. I can see. Um, now, where were you born? I was born in Temple, Texas. So oh. just north of where I live right now, Austin. Okay. So yeah. So Temple to Austin. I, I don't, I'm familiar with the geography to an extent. Um, what was the, what type of adoption did, did your parents use an agency? Was it, uh, it wasn't through the foster care system, was it? No, it was an agency. Okay. Um, and you don't have any siblings. You have birth siblings, but you don't have any siblings in your, in your family that, that, that raised you. Nope. And did you ever ask for siblings? <laughs> yes, I did. And my parents were like, no, like you're a handful. Like you're not, you're not going to want siblings. You want the idea of siblings and like the idea of siblings. But in reality, you're going to hate it because 
you're going to have to share your space, share the attention, all those things. Um, you know, it was lonely at times growing up. Um, but I think having an, being an only kid allowed me to kind of have the necess- necessary, um, not accommodations, but care that I needed because I had a lot of behavioral challenges. And so it was easy for my parents to focus and say, hey, you know, Deontay needs this, this, and this. Let's give him this, this, and that without being distracted and having to balance the care of, like, multiple kids. I get it. I get it. Now, you've talked uh, at length, and I think it's probably um, something that you have to address and think about quite a bit. So you're you're black and your family's white and that's the family who raised you and based on some of the things we've discussed it sounds to me like your parents uh were people are people of means. I mean you went to private school. Um yep. you sailed. Um yep. I'm imagining this is a journey that probably has no end, but can you talk about um, what the journey is like figuring out who you are uh, as a black man, especially, and you're what, 23, 24 years old? I'm 24, yeah. And, and you know, you've grown up at a time where um, the visibility of, of what people are led or, or told to think or, or believe they think about what it means to be a young black man, you know, this is the digital age, this is the MTV age, this is, everything is visible and, you know, what, what, society says and what sells uh is is a very certain image uh especially of young black men um can you just talk about what it was like figuring that out and coming to terms with the fact that you are who you are and you are just as much a black man as anybody else but it just looks a little bit different no for sure i really appreciate you bringing that up so throughout my life even sometimes now and i'm sure your daughters have been called this too you know, the term whitewash would get thrown around and like it obviously hurt and it still obviously hurts when I hear that. And so in my childhood, I really struggled with, you know, am I really black? What does it mean to be black? Like I talked to you at the beginning, I felt very uncomfortable around people that looked like me. I still sometimes feel a little bit uneasy around people that look like me. Um, because I don't see a whole lot of people that are similar to me. And so it's like, Ooh, are you guys judging me? I don't dress like your dress. I don't talk like you talk. And so there is that feeling going on in the back of my mind, but growing up, it was really hard because there weren't really any other black people in my life. And the ones that were would immediately shun me and say, Hey, you're definitely not one of us, like go hang out with the whites or whatever. Um, so I just was, it was that immediate rejection from people that looked like me. And so it was like, okay, great. Let's find a different avenue to explore. And I was really lucky growing up in middle school. I had some really solid friends, um, but you know, they were all white and were interested in, I don't know, typical white kid stuff. I mean, it's hard to really find your groove and find your community at that age. And so I just 
got with the people that made me feel good about myself and you know, it sucked, but I think it's hard to consider myself as black sometimes, honestly, because when we're having these conversations about racial injustice and police brutality and all these things that are so prevalent in the media, that just hasn't been my experience. So when I hear people talking about their interactions with the police and how things went wrong or whatever, it just seems so foreign. And I obviously know I'm very thankful and very grateful for that. But the only thing I have in common with people that have those experiences is like when I get pulled over, I'm still obviously like very afraid, but always been treated cordially. Um, I think I'm at a stage in my life where I'm done like trying to fit a mold. If you want to say I tried in high school really hard to be into stuff that the uh, kids of color were into, you know, I tried getting into shoes and rap and all that stuff, but it just like, it wasn't me. Um, and so once I got into like senior year, I said, you know what? I'm like super country at heart and I'm just going to be that way. And so like, it is, it can be like lonely and um, black circles, but at the same time, I, I was just tired of trying to pretend to be interested in things that I'm just am not interested in. Yeah. And, you know, uh, again, you're still a pretty young guy and who knows if that journey is over. I mean, only, you know, but, you know, I find something very interesting. And we, we had a conversation. You talked about traveling uh, to Louisiana and getting um, one one view uh, of people who look like you and then going to Atlanta uh, and getting something yes. very different. Can you talk <laughs> about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Um so my birth family used to live in Louisiana and I hated visiting them. I liked getting to see them obviously. And I looked forward to those moments with them, but driving through Louisiana, I would get so much anxiety because they didn't live in a nice part of town or anything like that. Like they were struggling to make ends meet for lack of a better way to phrase it. Um, and so that's the communities that they were in. And so I was just inundated with that, inundated with that. And I was like, well, okay. And as a kid, when you see that over and over again, and when you see people of your race living that life and that's all you see, it starts to click and it makes you feel like, okay, well, is this all that my race can be in? Obviously, like now you would say, like, why would you think that? That's problematic. All those things. Yes, it's true. But a kid doesn't know that. And so seeing that, I genuinely believed that that was all people that looked like me could be. And so it, I got down and I, start, I got sad, honestly. It was that you can either be an athlete or this is who you are. 
And then in college, I was probably a sophomore or junior, and we had a family friend from Heritage Camp move out to Atlanta. And so this was middle COVID, you know, not really doing much. And they said, hey, Deontay, you know, what are you doing for um, Thanksgiving? I told them, you know, not doing anything. Um, so they invited me out, and I took them off on their offer. You know, I flew out to visit them and their family. And that was the biggest cultural awakening that I've had. And, you know, I'm not a big international traveler person um, outside from, like, vacation destinations like Mexico and St. Lucia. So this was the biggest eye-opener because I remember getting off of the plane the doors open, you know, you're going down the jetway, you get into the plant or the um, airport, and I'm just looking at a sea of black people. But it wasn't just seeing black people that made me like take a step back. It was seeing the ways in which the black people were showing up. You know, it was the super, super nice dressed up men in suits, the beautiful women dressed up. It was the country folk. It was just the whole spectrum. And I was like, yes, this is what I need. This is what I've been looking for because I'm tired of wearing my boots and whatever and people saying, hey, you can't do that. You go to Atlanta and it's you're seeing that. You're seeing the... Um, people that drive the BMWs, you're seeing just the whole spectrum. And so it was really healing because it was at that moment that I um, said, you know, this is okay. And I remember going to a barber shop and getting a haircut and then complimenting my, boot, my boots. And they had like the country music going and it was just really funny. And it was the first time that I had felt okay showing up the way that I show up. That had to have been a very warm uh, and, and probably an emotional experience for you. You know, we have so much in common. Um, you know what my family looks like, and I don't I may have even told you the story, you know, 20 years ago when my wife and I were trying to decide whether we were going to stay in New Mexico or we were going to try to move, um, you know, closer to, closer to our families. And, you know, we had the thought, you know, we know where we live and it's not particularly culturally diverse. And what we didn't want was our kids to their only exposure to black people to be on professional sports and, and on MTV. Yeah. And we didn't want their only exposure to Muslims or Middle Easterners to be on some of the unfortunate things we see on the nightly news. And of course, we chuckle because at that time we had no idea what our family was going to look like. But... um you know, and so we do, you know, we have we have the, the, the trick of trying to make sure that our kids are exposed to and see people who look like them. And, you know, we were a couple of summers ago visiting my dad. Uh, I don't know if my mom was still my mom died three years ago. But, you know, we were in Ashburn, Virginia, which is in a, a very extremely affluent area outside of Washington, D.C. And I was at a You know, we were at the, one of those fancy movie theaters where they have a bar and you can order actual food and. I remember thinking, I, I wish I had this for my kids because I was I saw just numerous people who I could only assume were middle and upper middle class black people. 
And I want that for my kids. And just, you know, we made the, we've made the decisions we've made about where we're going to live. And, and there are a lot of positives to it, but they're, they're missing out on things. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you had that experience. You actually kind of reminded me uh, when you talked about seeing other people with, with country people and other black country people with boots and getting complimented at the barbershop. You know, um, I, I interviewed a guest uh, a couple of seasons ago, uh, Dr. Timothy Nelson, who's a history professor and has done his uh, his the focus of his research is a town called Blackdom, New Mexico, which is just north of, of uh, Roswell. And um, it was basically a group of black investors who came out and, and kind of built a town and uh, put money into an oil company. Of course, things went bust in the in the 20s with that. But um, he has produces a lot of content um, with his business partner, Marissa showing um black cowboys you know things that you don't see images of and you know they suggested to me there's a movie and I, of course i'm not going to remember it now i'll have to tell you about it later but it's in philadelphia i believe and it's a group of black black horse people who 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 raise horses in the city of philadelphia and um you just kind of made me think of that but i want to get back to um you know attending heritage camps for adoptive families how did that and how did that experience help you develop your identity That's a great question. Um, I can't say enough about heritage camps. Um, I think it made me feel safe in a way. It was the only place where, like you said at the beginning, you know, you see families that look like you, and it's the only. It was the only place that I felt comfortable in my skin and I felt comfortable being around my parents um, without being embarrassed or even ashamed. And so like some of the people my age that I met at camp are still really good friends of mine. I still love going to camp. It is like nice to be around people not only who have known you so long but also people who have just un- understand what it's like to be an adoptee. And, you know, interestingly enough, the heritage camps for adoptive families uh, played in a very important part in you deciding where you're going to go to college. Yes, it did. Can, can we talk about that? Yeah, Absolutely. So, I mean, you obviously make these close connections, and you realize that there were people uh, in that area. Yes, I remember, um, oh, man, I remember getting, like, the post-camp, like, sadness. And I don't know if your kids experienced that after camp, but um, every year after camp, we would be driving home, and I would just get so down in the dumps. And I remember, man, I, I must have been like late middle school, early high school, just bawling my eyes out. I mean, absolutely bawling my eyes out a majority of the drive back home. And then I thought to my, and then like begging my parents, can we please move to Denver? Can we please move to Denver? Obviously they were, they told me no. Um, we have family in Texas, our roots are here, we built our house, all these um, things which made sense. And I remember thinking, like, okay, when I 
get to be college age, I'm going to school in Colorado. Um, and so when they start doing the college um, prep stuff in high school, I was just dead set on, I'm going to go to Colorado. I don't care what university, I just am going to go to school in Colorado. Um, and I did. You ended up at UC Boulder, which of all uh, places, of course. Uh, Colorado State. Oh, you went to Colorado, Colorado State. State. Okay, now where was Colorado State? Fort Collins. That's in Fort Collins. Okay, I was a little bit confused. I was going to joke, you know, we drove through, obviously drive through Boulder on the way to Estes Park, and um, I'd heard about it, and I, man, I was, I had lived there in a heartbeat. Of course, you can't, nobody can afford to live there anymore, but. Um, no, you can't. I, I would imagine if, 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 Collar, if Fort Collins is anything like Boulder, you, you went from one place where there we're surrounded by people who weren't like you and probably to another because for all of the, of all of the great things that I saw in Boulder and things that would make me feel comfortable, um, you know, there definitely is a shortage of, of, of the kind of experience that you would have, you would have had in Atlanta. But interestingly enough, you decided to go into social work. Now, believe it or not, you are not the first black male social worker I've interviewed on this show. Um, but I have to imagine, and I have my own story, you know, when I was in college, I, you know, I got my degree in history. I had to take a fine arts credit, and I actually really, really, really wanted to take tap dance. Um, but they didn't have it the semester that I had kind of figured, planned out things out to use that, that to fulfill that credit. So I took ballet instead. And, you know, to, to nobody's surprise, I was one of, one of two males in a class full of probably 30 people. And um, I was the only male who was interested in women. So I thought to myself, wow, this is gonna, there are going to be some opportunities this semester, and I'm not going to go there. But um, I would have to imagine, um, and of course, this is a family show, so family-friendly show. So um, you're, a, you know, I mean, the typical, you know, tall, dark, and handsome man uh, in a in a social work program, surrounded by women. I have to imagine that was um, some fun. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely interesting, um, and they were all like very cute girls. Um, yeah, I remember thinking to myself one year when I was definitely like in a class of all women, sometimes there'd be more than just one other guy. There was like a handful typically, but one year I went in and I was the only guy and this was the year that we were doing our internship. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, down the road, like a couple months later when we all were going out to like quote-unquote interview for our internship, I go to this um, placement, and I walk in and saying it's like all the girls in my class and then me, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm definitely going to get this internship because I'm the only guy here, you know? Um, and so I enjoyed it. I think at that time, I felt closer or had more female friends than I did male friends. And that's just because after middle school, when I got a little older, like maybe seventh, eighth grade, I started to experience like a lot of bullying. And so high school, I didn't really have a lot of friends and growing into college. I, the first people I connected with were girls. Um, and it wasn't until recently that I started hanging out with some of my guy friends I had growing up that I was like, Oh yeah, like this is this is fun. Now you uh you ended up getting your uh, bachelor's uh bachelor of social work 
And um, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about who your actual employer is, but if you want to maybe talk about the type of work that you do, uh, that's it is it's definitely related to the social work field. Yes, absolutely. So I actually just got a new job still within my agency, but I'm going to be uh, working more directly with clients. I'm going to be an employment specialist. And so what that means is we work with clients predominantly who struggle with um, mental health or substance abuse concerns, um, and we help them find uh, sustainable and fulfilling work. Uh, we can provide them with clothing, um, job training assistance, resume boosting, um, and then they also, while they're in the program, receive one-on-one um, -on -one counseling for whatever support that they need for their uh, mental health or substance abuse. Have you ever considered uh, working in adoption? That's a great question. Um, I was actually looking at working at some foster agencies. I definitely have considered working in adoption um, because I think that would be really meaningful to work with families who are thinking about adopting or who have begun the process of adopting. But I also think that it would be hard for me to detach and I think that I would just see every story at, or every situation as this is my story again and again and again. So I don't know how I would be able to like separate myself as an adoptee in those situations. And that you know what that makes sense. I think that for obviously you would have an insight and be able to bring something that would be unbelievably valuable um, to your clients. But at the same time, you spent have spent so much of your life processing and finding your identity and dealing with the whole thing um, that maybe being around it all the time might not be healthy. Um, you know, you, you, work, you work cowboy boots, you listen to country music. You've been to Nashville, right? I haven't. It's on my list. I just need somebody to uh, go with me. It's on my list. It looks so fun. Who, who are you? What, is there a particular type of country that you like, and who are some of the artists that you, you enjoy? Oh, absolutely. I can list all of them. So when I was flying out to Denver for camp, I saw Shane Smith of Shane Smith and the Saints on my plane. And he is one of my favorite artists. Uh, last year on Spotify, he was my most listened to artist. So absolutely, I gave him a handshake, was like, hell yeah, brother, and just the whole thing. And then I also like Josh Abbott um, and Whiskey Myers. And all three of those that I just mentioned are all from Texas. So I pretty much just listen to Texas country. Um, and so it's cool because the concerts are a lot more smaller and intimate um, and, frankly, a lot cheaper than going to see, like, the big-name people that you hear on, like, just the day-to-day -day radio. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Whiskey Myers. You know, I'm, I'm pushing 50, and I started listening to country music in high school. So the late late nineteen eighties, and um, I I don't I've never really discriminated. I like what's on the radio. I like some of the deeper stuff, the older stuff. Uh, for whatever reason, I just have found myself the last three or four years not listening to country so much. But one of the great things about um, you know I, I I get my music on my phone. I use it uh, at home or, or when I'm out and about on Apple Podcast. But I listen at work. I listen to Pandora, and I I guess it's because I started listening to Pandora you know about a dozen or so years ago. Um, 
and I've just kind of moved on from that. But I, I listen to that at my desk. The great thing about Pandora is that you hear artists that you might not, you know, otherwise hear. So I discovered in my Facebook feed one day an artist named John Moreland, uh, who's in Oklahoma, and he's kind of like a roots rock folk, uh, not quite Texas country, but on the station I created for him, I discovered Whiskey Myers. And, uh, you know, another band I really like that I discovered that way is uh, Turnpike Troubadours. And um, yeah. there, there is something yeah. that is so cool. And, and, and Deontay, I don't get into the whole we hate pop country thing and blah, blah, blah. I can see where those people come from. But if I had to pick uh, a type of country music that I enjoy listening to most, it's probably the same artist that you do. Um, so we've got that in yeah. common. Now, look, I don't do one of the things about my show is I don't do hot takes. I don't ask people for hot takes and ask, you know, hard hitting questions. But um, do you have an opinion? And if you don't want to talk about it, do you have an opinion on the new Jason Aldean song and all the hubbub that's been made about it? I I will give you my uh, my hot take for sure. Um, so I have been listening to that song since it came out and. You know, I didn't interpret it as anything out there. I interpreted it as more like getting into brawl fights, bar fights, and you could argue, like, don't resolve things with violence. Yes, I agree. But then I saw on my Facebook feed people getting all upset. So I went and did, I looked at their music video, and I was like, oh, that's not great because I heard it took place at a site of a lynching. But then I decided, you know, maybe Jason Aldean didn't know. Who knows? Maybe it was a dog whistle. Who knows? But now I'm kind of like, I don't know, because you can give him the benefit of the doubt, but then you can also say, like, hey, as an artist, if you're flirting with that line, you don't know how people are going to interpret that. You know, someone like me could interpret that and be like, it's probably fine. But then somebody who like is a violent person or has hate in their heart could interpret that and be like, Hey, he's talking to me. So I think he's kind of flirting with a kind of dangerous line, but I wasn't upset at it. And it wasn't until I saw people's like reactions that I was like, Oh, maybe this isn't great. So when I first heard it, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was a song. So that's kind of my take. Yeah, and you know, without without getting too much into it, I think the song is one thing, but when you watch the video, it does. There's another element, and um, if nothing yeah. else, it's a very unfortunate reminder of how how divided we are in in a lot of ways, and how yeah. people uh, will will take their position, the the predictable position, unfortunately, and kind of dig their heels in, and uh, and that's going to yeah. be that. You know, but um, hey, we're running out of time. Deontay, do you want to just give a good uh, give a plug to your podcast? Yes, absolutely. You can find us on Spotify. We are the Tough Love Podcast, adoptee perspectives on relationships. Um, we are going to rebrand, we think, but you'll still be able to find us on that page. Um, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Um, if any of your listeners have kids who are adopted, I highly, highly, highly recommend checking out Heritage Camps for Adopted Families. Personally, believe you won't regret it. Um, it's just been like a life changer, and so I just really want to spread the word. You know, Deontay, I'm going to get a little bit sentimental here. Um, you know, there's certain people that you meet, and you know right away that the energy that they have is, is, is beyond amazing. 
Um, and I know that you obviously you're not happy every moment of every day. Um, and you, times where you're not feeling good about things or whatever, but uh, it's just hard for me to imagine anybody meeting you and not seeing uh, the absolute, just the bright and beautiful energy that you have. And that, you know, I, I think I can speak for my entire family because we all spent time talking. Um, I can't wait to see you uh, next year uh, at Heritage Camps for Adoptive Families. And spoiler, I am actually planning a trip with my oldest uh, to the DFW and Austin area, hopefully in the next couple months. So, you, you can be sure that we're going to look you up. All right, awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed my conversation with Deont- Deontay Boswell as much as I have. Uh, I believe wholeheartedly that you will. As you guys know, we uh not doing seasons anymore on the Square Peg podcast, but our aim is to drop a new episode uh, on the second Tuesday or Wednesday of every month. So I hope you enjoy this, and please um, subscribe. We're on Pandora. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our homepage at lascrucestoday.com. This is your host, Andrew Lawrence, on the Square Peg Podcast. We will see you next time.